You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything. available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers and all our episodes ad-free. Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening. You have been washed in the blood. Merry fucking Yule. You promise your wife you'll be fine. You can make it there and back before nightfall. You have all the hubris of a much younger man because you don't want her to worry. You want her to continue her preparations for Yule. You want to return to the smell of roasting ham and wassail. And besides, you've made this journey before, many times. You pick your way through the dark forest. Every skeletal tree seems to point in a different direction. You've walked these woods every day of your long life, but now you are hopelessly lost and alone, and they are coming. You move as quickly as you can, but the cold bites at your toes. One by one, you lose feeling in them. Your feet become so heavy, as if they are growing roots and you are becoming fixed to the ground. You have to keep going. The wind picks up and you can't feel your face. Your eyes leak and the water freezes to your cheeks. You have never been so cold, but at least the snow has ended. You stare up at the clear night sky, searching for a star to guide you home. You strain your eyes, but no matter how hard you try, you can't see the stars. Instead, you see a parade of beautiful lights, blues chasing indigos, chasing deep greens across the sky, pinks so bright they make the forest come alive with fire and dreams. You sit down, because your limbs are weary, because the cold isn't the worst thing anymore, because the sky is so haunting, you have never seen it like this. So many colors. You hear the sounds of the wild hunt before you see them. The clashes of steel, the ring of Thor's hammer, the cries of the dead and dying, the sounds of the ghostly horde. You should be afraid. All your life you have been told to fear the wild hunt, to fear the deadly dance that races across the winter skies. But now, within sight of Odin, the All-Father, you do not feel afraid. 
you will have a new life, one that will race across the nine worlds, one that will never end. You slink from your old and tired skin. It cannot hold you anymore. And the All-Father nods to you. He claps his hand on your shoulder. And just like that, you're young again. You have your bow and your hands are able to grasp it, to pull it taut. Your fingers are no longer pained and twisted. You no longer feel the cold. Your eyes no longer leak. You are home. Your wife will miss you. The children will sob. They will say you were a foolish old man who got caught in the cold. But you know better. I'm Jen McBenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. So aside from that rather dramatic and sad intro, it is actually the most wonderful time of the year. I mean, you say that every time we do a seasonal episode. I totally do. Really into the holidays. (laughs) I am really into the holidays. But this time, I mean it. It's almost time for Saturnalia. Yo, Saturnalia! Yo, Saturnalia. Praise Saturn. Praise Saturn. In addition to reminding you of the epicness of Saturn, we're going to introduce you to a celebration that has its roots in ancient history and mythology. Yule, or Yule, which is spelled J-U-L, is an ancient Norse celebration that, like Saturnalia, shares a lot of traditions that we have now incorporated as part of our Christmas and winter holidays. Jenny, What do you know about Yule? I guess I thought that Yule was basically the same thing as Christmas. Would you say that you didn't know Yule? I would say I did not know Yule, but I didn't know what I didn't know, Jen, is the thing. Like, I thought Yule was kind of an old-fashioned word for Christmas, and there was a Christmas tree involved, and I guess there was a log. And that's it. Like, that's all I know. (laughs) As you can hear from the cold open, that is not exactly true. Yeah, no, Yule is bigger and deeper and older than any of us suspect. And possibly bigger and deeper and older than you suspect, even if you know more about Yule than we did when we first started. We're hoping that this episode will surprise you. So the name Yule changed over the years to Yuletide. Many people across the world celebrate Yule today. It's part of Wiccan and pagan religions. Different Yuletide customs have come through to us today in different Scandinavian and other Western countries and in the ways we celebrate and how we approach the winter holiday season. Yeah, and you can hear it in Deck the Halls. You know, it goes troll the ancient Yuletide carol. Fa la 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 la. And I'm sure this is going to blow your mind, but Deck the Halls is pretty much all about getting ready for Yule. Is that really the lyric, troll the ancient Yuletide carol? Yeah, I actually mean troll. Trolling in this instance means to sing loudly. According to Mental Floss, and we all love and trust Mental Floss, don't we? It is actually trolling. Trolling has its roots in the 16th century when carols were actually sung in rounds. People have started changing it to toll as in Toll the Ancient Yuletide Carol, because they mistakenly think that troll is wrong. And they think it's like something to do with a giant Icelandic troll, but it's not. It's about carols being sung in rounds. So they are wrong. And I do indeed mean troll. There you have it. It is supposed to be troll. It's not supposed to be toll. It's supposed to be troll. And another etymology fact that may just blow your mind. The name Yule is actually another alias for Odin, the Norse king of the gods. Wait a minute. Are you saying that during Yule, Odin becomes Father Odin, miss? I think so. I think that's what I'm saying. He also rides around on an eight-legged horse. The Yule-tied spider horse is a very important component of Yule. I've had so much wassail. If you don't tell me the story quickly, I'm going to fall asleep. Is it wassail? I mean, 
No, it's not. I'm pretty sure it's wassail. <laughs> anyway. What are you drinking exactly? I am drinking what is our festive drink that my husband and I have been drinking since we got married. It is a spin on a white Russian. It is vodka, Kahlua, skimmed milk, and some whipped cream. And we call it a white rabbit. It is definitely a white Russian with whipped cream. This sounds really yummy. I had a plan for this episode. I was going to mull some cider and put some whiskey in the cider and drink that. So I've been mulling cider all week because it's a thing I like to do. I have a crock pot. My apartment smells like cider. It's amazing. But I had a friend over last night and we drank all my cider. And I definitely did not wake up early enough in the morning to get more. So I went to the corner store and got some beer. So I'm just drinking a blue moon like usual because I'm lazy as fuck. They are. (laughs) So the exact date when Yule was first celebrated isn't known. It predates Christianity and appears in the Norse epics. Yule is generally associated with Viking Age Scandinavia, which is roughly 800 to 1066 AD, but it's probable that Yule predates even that. Perhaps the earliest evidence of the existence of this holiday comes from the 4th century Gothic language Alaric's people, Jen's people. My ancient Gothic roots. That's right where it appears in the name of a month, Fruma Julius, which I'm probably mispronouncing, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, and which was probably either around December or January, somewhere around there. Y'all, I'm not gonna lie, I was supposed to do the pronunciation guide, and I could have done that, or I could make some wassail. Continues to mispronounce wassail. It's wassail! (laughs) It's wassail. So, the English historian Bede... Whatever. Shut up! (laughs) (laughs) Writing in the 8th century AD, also mentioned the name as being part of the Anglo-Saxon Saxon calendar, Giola or Yuli, which lined up with the winter months as well. I know I was mispronouncing that. But references to Yule really take off in Old Norse. The holiday features prominently as Yol, J-O-L, in the Prose Edda, an Icelandic epic written down around 1220 AD. One of the names for the gods in the Prose Edda is Yule beings. Yule was celebrated around midwinter and it lasted 12 days. Like Saturnalia or other midwinter ancient festivals, it was a way to celebrate the winter solstice and the returning of the sun. In fact, the ancient Vikings believed the sun ceased to move for the 12 days of Yule. And these solstice celebrations have their roots in prehistory. So the story of Yule is definitely older than we have records for. Yeah, because that's what prehistory means. Thanks, Jen. Guys, don't drink wassail and record a holiday episode. <laughs> it's wassail. First off, you're not drinking wassail or wassail because I don't think that this is the, I think the white rabbit is a unique to you drink. The white rabbit is unique to us, but wassail or wassail was usually like bits and pieces of alcohol that you were given when you went to someone's house and were obnoxiously singing Christmas carols. You'd hold out your wassail bowl and they would fill it with like the ends of whatever drink they had. So it could be anything. I see. So it's really more about how much were you harassing your host for alcohol more than what you're actually drinking. And if you're a McMenemy, you know that harassment can be quite extreme. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) moving on. In Scandinavia, where the nights were particularly long and dark, this was a much needed event. In places like Norway, where the average amount of daylight in December is around six-ish hours, which when you factor in things like sunrise and sunset is actually a bit less than that. Maybe you're looking at more like four hours. Yeah, and that would probably depend on where in Norway or the Scandinavian country in question you are. The winters in Scandinavian countries and in England and Scotland were dark and long and of course snowy, and people spent a lot of time indoors, hunkered in their Viking longhouses, around their fires, and all battened down against the elements, hoping for 
for the sun to come back. This is actually really interesting because Yule was an ancient celebration whose purpose, among other things, was to encourage the sun to return. And obviously, people saw a lot less of the sun during Scandinavian winter. But these holidays are really widespread and ancient. And isn't that weird? I mean, the sun comes back every morning. Why do the ancient people have this fear that it wouldn't someday? Yeah, and I would say that this doesn't just occur in far northern areas. It occurs in places throughout the world. But actually, there were some times in ancient history when the sun did disappear for a while. Times like, for example, large volcanic eruptions. Ooh, are we talking about volcanic winters? Those are my favorite kind of winters. I'm such a volcano nerd. Jen's favorite kind of winter is volcanic winter. <laughs> According to an article by Catherine Jex in Science Nordic magazine, volcanoes were major causes of big changes in climate for the past 2,500 years and, you know, probably going back much farther than that, but that was the scope of the study. The dust clouds from big volcanic eruptions could block out the sun in areas very far from the eruption. The article mentions a study of more than 300 eruptions that went all the way back to the 500s BC. According to new evidence and more precise dating techniques, 15 of 16 record cold years in that period occurred at the same time as big volcanic eruptions, some in the northern hemisphere and some in the tropics. So scientists compared these days with eyewitness accounts in places as diverse as China, the Middle East, and Europe, where people mentioned unusual crimson skies or the disappearance of the sun altogether behind a black curtain of volcanic dust. In one account, in 536 AD, people in the Mediterranean mentioned a mystery cloud that lasted a year and a half. These eruptions could cause many ice ages that lasted sometimes as long as 15 years and led to serious famine, crop dieout, and social upheaval. I can think of like four off the top of my head that would have called to volcanic winter. And one of the most famous ones is the Tambora eruption, which happened in, I believe, 1812 or 1816. And it was called the year without summer. And that is the year the Thames froze. It's what Charles Dickens was writing about. It's the year that they had this terrible winter across all of Europe and Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker, I believe, wrote Frankenstein and Dracula on a bet because they literally had a summer with absolutely no sunshine. So they were sort of stuck indoors and it was cold and miserable and they wrote these brilliant gothic tales. It must have felt like the end of the world. It must have. And it was because of the Tambora eruption, which wasn't necessarily an eruption that was in Europe. So it wasn't something they would have known was the cause of it. If you look at Edward Munch's The Scream, where the person is on the bridge screaming and there's those incredible colors behind him, those colors are an example of what happens when a volcano erupts. You get these incredible sunsets, like unreal sunsets throughout the entire world. And you also see evidence of this year without summer when Laura Ingalls Wilder was writing, I believe it was called something like The Long Winter in the Little House on the Prairie series. They had problems over there with winter coming back and hitting them over and over again. Was it due to a volcano? It was due to a volcanic eruption. It had changed the weather patterns of the entire world. It was a massive eruption. So do we know for sure that holidays dedicated to bringing back the sun were originally inspired by ancient volcanic eruptions? Yes! <laughs> Going out on a limb and just full-throatedly endorsing this theory that we just made up. We didn't just make it up. There's a lot of scientific evidence behind this. There's scientific evidence that volcanic eruptions did cause massive volcanic winters and also times of darkness where the sun really did seem to disappear for long periods of time. And this sense of maybe the sun behaving strangely. But we don't necessarily have evidence that this is tied to holidays where the point of the holiday is to bring the sun back. But we like this theory and we're going to stick with it. We like this theory. 
But there are other possible tie-ins between these holidays that try to bring back the sun and what the sun is actually doing. Like the fact that the farther north you go, the less you see of the sun in the winter until you get far enough north where it disappears for the whole season. Or maybe it was just tied to shorter days of sunlight in general and the solstice celebration which marks the turnaround from shorter to longer days. We don't know, but we do know in our hearts. We know. <laughs> in our hearts, it's a volcano. <laughs> I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So actually, one thing we know about winter in ancient Scandinavia and other parts of Europe for sure, the seas were too rough and unpredictable for sailing. Land was covered in a blanket of snow, so agriculture was over for the season. It was time to take a breath and celebrate making it through the summer and the harvest. The word yol or yule shares the same etymology as the French word jolie, and it's where we get the word jolly from. The French word jolie means pretty. Like Saturnalia, yule was a long feast. It ran for 12 days around the winter solstice around the 21st of December around then. This year it's actually the 22nd of December but it can switch around. Right. Some sources suggest that it began as a festival to mark the change in season to the period in time when hunting became more prevalent as opposed to farming or fishing. In November through to early January hunting parties became incredibly important as a source of bringing in new food. Many modern hunting seasons are in the autumn just before winter starts to help thin out populations ahead of the long winter. This is exactly what ancient people did as well. In the autumn when game was more plentiful, after the harvest was brought in, and just as the days were getting shorter, they took to the forest and hunted. And unlike Saturnalia, it was a time when a lot of business was conducted. During Saturnalia, the ancient Romans paused all business. Saturnalia was a time when everyone feasted, had a reversal of roles, and enjoyed more freedoms than any other time throughout the year. During Yule, there were strict ritual sacrifices to the gods and rituals that had to be observed in order to make it through the long winter and the return of the light. What I found really interesting when researching Yule was how different this festival was to Saturnalia. On the surface, you can look at both festivals and see a lot of modern day Christmas in them. So many Yule symbols were appropriated by Christianity, and that was pretty much deliberate. Early Christians who made inroads into Germanic and Norse territories wanted to assimilate Christian culture to the older traditions and festivals. From about 934, Christianity had made inroads in Scandinavia, and we see this in the Saga of Hawken the Good. The Saga of Hawken the Good credits Hawken with Christianizing Norway and also moving Yule to coincide with a certain Christian holiday. Was Hawken the Good a real person? He was, and he had his own saga. He was like an early Norse king who had a big role in Christianity the Norse countries, and he was probably a real historical figure. Probably. Okay. Hawken hid his Christianity in order to get help from the chieftains and then went about sneakily moving older pagan holidays so that they lined up with those he celebrated in his own faith. Very sneaky, Hakon. Very sneaky. Christians were keen to make Yule a pinnacle festival in the Germanic and Nordic cultures, 
more Christian because they were aware that the best way to convert people to their religion was to sort of adapt these older beliefs to their new religion. And you definitely see the ancient Romans doing that too. I mean, this is a real ancient game. Saturnalia did that. Saturnalia absolutely did that. There is nothing different from what the Romans did to what the Christians are doing. So we first see Yuletide used to refer to Christmas time in 1475. And that was a huge change because now Yuletide meant Christmas time. Early Christians did a great job assimilating so many of the Yule symbols. We still use them in our modern celebrations today, including Christmas trees, Yule logs, wreaths, mistletoe, wassailing, or rowdy caroling, and Father Christmas or Santa Claus. But once you look a bit deeper, Yule is so, so different than Christmas. Not the same thing at all. Because this was the misconception that I had before doing this episode. I thought Yule and Christmas were kind of basically the same thing and that Yule was just like it's, you know, old fashioned word for Christmas. So did I. And to be honest, I did the primary research on this. And a lot of the articles I read was Yule, Viking Christmas. And then I started looking into it and I was like, is it really Viking Christmas? And weren't the Vikings pagans? And why would they have Christmas the same way we have Christmas? And then as I started really digging into it, I started seeing what the festival was itself. And it's older and darker and weirder than I ever thought it would be. Yeah. So it's this beautiful fertility festival filled with the hope and promise of rebirth, the letting go of an old year, and the general terror of the wild hunt. And Odin Claus, because we're definitely going to explain the connection between Odin and Father Christmas. And you know, the weird thing is, Jen, that Odin does look a little bit like Father Christmas in some depictions. Like, he's got these, like, black robes on, and he's got this big black witch's hat on, he's got a staff, and he's got two ravens that sit on his shoulders. I believe that their names translate to knowledge and memory. I might be fucking that up. And he's got one eye and a big white beard. He's like a scary Father Christmas. He's totally a scary Father Christmas. And what I love about early Father Christmas and, like, where Father Christmas came from, and we're gonna see it in some of the stuff we talk about later, is it didn't always start as a kind guy who brought you toys. There's definitely an image of a bearded man flying across the sky. That is an old image, but it's quite a bit older than our modern conception of Father Christmas, and it was not so sanitized way back when, and we're going to get to that. So that brings us to one of my favorite parts of ancient Yule, which was the Wild Hunt. And I've read about the Wild Hunt a lot in mythology. It crops up in Celtic myths, too. And I'd always assumed it took place in the autumn or the spring or maybe around Halloween. Like, this is something I associated with Samhain. Me too. I always thought this was like a Samhain thing, like a Halloween thing. But actually, it's also associated with the winter holiday period and with Norse mythology. And that makes it very old. I mean, wait, let's stop for a minute because we talked about this and I thought it was really interesting how the mythology might have spread between the Norse mythology and the Celtic mythology. Right. Yeah. I think what I was talking about was the history of the Germanic people, Alaric's people. Those people, and I don't have my notes about this history in front of me right this moment. I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head. So you really just never know what you're going to get when I do that. After some wassail. Wassail, wassail. I guess we're going to argue about how to pronounce that word. Wassail. <laughs> we're two people who can't pronounce words. We have a podcast. You can't trust either of us when it comes to how to pronounce stuff. So we're probably both pronouncing it wrong. We're two triceratops who have a podcast. Could triceratops pronounce words? 
No. But please, I found this really fascinating because, again, I did the primary research, but I brought this up to Jenny. And Jenny has been living in the history of the Germanic peoples for a long time because she's writing a romance novel about Alaric of the Visigoths. So when we were talking about the idea of the wild hunt being Celtic, Jenny gave me this really interesting insight on how that myth could have spread from the Germanic peoples and either been sort of cross-pollinated from the Celtic peoples or the other way around. Right. And we don't know which it is, but I was talking about the history of Germanic migration. If you read ancient chroniclers like Jordanes, who talks about the history of the Goths, who were the people who sacked Rome and who Alaric of the Visigoths was the leader of at one point, etc. There's a whole rabbit hole I go into in our Stuff Alaric Said episode. But ancient chroniclers say that the Goths came from this place called Skansa. And archaeologists, I believe there are some archaeologists who think that the Germanic people may have originally come from southern Scandinavia, migrated down, wound up in eastern Europe in that area, and then eventually wound up sacking Rome. But it's possible that during that migration, which started, I believe the last article I read about that said it may have started from around 7 or 6 or 800 BC, really long time ago. When those people were moving down, they were moving down into like Western and then Eastern Europe, which was definitely Celtic territory. So all these people were colliding and mixing and moving among each other. And there was probably, I would say definitely, a lot of cultural exchange going on. And you even see this, you know, when you read the commentaries, you see Germanic people and Celtic people occupying the same space and Julius Caesar interacting with both, even as far up as when Julius Caesar invaded Gaul, which was like 58 BC. You definitely see these people kind of living alongside each other and living in adjacent territories. And it really doesn't surprise me to see similar myths cropping up in both traditions. I find that really fascinating. I found it really fascinating. And to be honest, I didn't know a lot about this migration or how this cultural exchange worked. And this is a very myopic view, but I kind of always thought these cultures developed in sort of like a microcosm, but of course they don't. And like, I had my experience with the wild hunt from having a very Irish-Scottish background. And I sort of always grew up thinking like, oh, well, it just comes from this culture. But actually all of these cultures at the time they were developing were alive and breathing and their mythology and their stories all sort of changed and developed around each other's. And to me, that is one of the gifts that this podcast and this research has given me. It's this ability to see these stories that have roots in different cultures and how they adapted and developed across them. Yeah, so let's talk about what the Wild Hunt actually is. So picture a raving horde of goats, gods, valkyries, hunting dogs, horses, some of which have eight legs, and the dead. This is something that in Celtic mythology, I believe, is associated with Sawain and Halloween time, but in Norse mythology, is very much associated with midwinter traditions. When the nights grew longer, people feared being caught outside at night by the Wild Hunt, a spectral hunting party that raced across the nine worlds of Norse mythology, led by Odin, the king of the Norse gods and of the dead. Midwinter, like Sawain, was a time when the barriers between the worlds was more liminal and when the dead were able to once again walk among us. Or fly in the sky. During Yule, the barrier between the worlds was thinner, allowing for spirits to pass into our world, and these spirits would usually wind up being caught up in the Wild Hunt. If you died during a time when the Wild Hunt was happening, the theory is that your spirit would be caught up in the wild hunt. The wild hunt brought with it loud noises, howling winds, storms, and terror. To be caught outside by the wild hunt meant risking being captured by the spectral army racing across the sky. 
If you were lucky, you'd wind up deposited miles away from your destination, still in one piece and, you know, alive. If you were unlucky, the wild hunt would take your soul and you'd become a part of it. Your body would be left behind on the forest floor or wherever you fell, and your spirit would be forever cursed to join the wild hunt across the winter night sky. And... This makes a lot of sense to me as a cautionary tale. The Viking homeland of Scandinavia was, and still is, very cold with severe winter weather and far enough north that the winter days were very short and dark. In the winter, when the days are short and the weather is brutally cold, there is a certain fear of the outdoors. It doesn't take long for you to become lost outside in the snow or to suffer from things like frostbite, hypothermia, or illness. And then there are the storms. Storms that can come up quickly in the winter without your phone or the local weatherman to tell you they are coming. You could wind up outside and in danger before you knew it. So this myth about the wild hunt offers caution. Don't go outside when the wind is raging. Because if you do, Jenny, the wild hunt might catch you. It also probably grimly explains something very dark, which is the amount of people who died in the winter in Viking territory. Yes, the wild hunt would take you up into its violent arms if you were caught outdoors. But the wild hunt could also claim people who died indoors during winter. And I kind of love this image, actually, of a family being in a house in wintertime with a storm raging outside and screaming around the corners of the house and making all the quite scary sounds a violent storm can make right outside as you are inside sheltering in your house. And somebody sick or old and dying during that time, I could really imagine the feeling of that person being taken up by the storm. In the house I grew up in, we used to get these really terrible nor'easters. I grew up on Long Island. I grew up sort of coastal. And we would get these raging storms that would just attack in the winter. And it would sound like a train was just barreling through our house. Yeah. The other thing that Jen pointed out in this episode that I didn't know, but is really fascinating, is that statistically more people die in winter than in summer. And that's not just in Nordic countries. That's kind of like in general, right, Jen? Actually, more people do die in January and March, which I can kind of understand because a lot of people try to hold on through the holidays and make it to January. And it's kind of the same with March. They get to that beginning of March and they're like, spring is here. It's okay. It's a new season. And then they die. Yeah, unfortunately. So there's a lot of different reasons for people dying during the colder months. Harsh weather conditions, lack of food, more colds and flus and illnesses, and close quarters make for more deaths. And I imagine that this was especially the case in ancient times. Yeah. And again, remember that thing with close quarters is the reason close quarters is such an important thing is the spread of disease a lot of times happens when everybody is inside, but particularly in Viking and in some older cultures, they actually had their animals inside as well. So if you think about it, there's a lot of different things that are spreading disease. So anyway, January tends to be the biggest month for mortality in the year, and people who died during the darkest part of the winter, November to January, were said to be taken up into the wild hunt. And here's another totally ancient history fangirl speculative fiction, fan fiction right now. The best time to see the northern lights, or the aurora borealis, is from November to March, right during the period of the wild hunt. And can you imagine, Jen, looking out at the night sky and watching the incredible northern lights in ancient times and what that must have looked like, especially without light pollution. 
That is one of my dreams that is on my bucket list. Right. So the wild stories that you'd make up about the lights dancing across the sky and the cold air stealing your breath and the silence of the world on a clear winter's night. I mean, to me, it makes perfect sense that when you saw the northern lights, you could basically just imagine that they were the spectral effects of the wild hunt, right? Absolutely. Modern scholars haven't necessarily drawn this connection that I've read or that Jen's read, right? No. But... We're going to just go out on a limb once again because we're way out on a limb right now and say that ancient festivals about the sun returning are all about volcanoes, Santa Claus is Odin Claus, and that the Wild Hunt was inspired by the Northern Lights. We're just going to go ahead and say those things and let the chips fall where they may. Anyway, it's winter. Odin is making his trek across the sky. There will be no more planting, no more sailing, and the trees have gone to sleep. All except for those pesky evergreen or pine trees. The world has gone eerily still and cold. How do you ensure that the world will wake up after winter? This is a question that has boggled the minds of many ancient cultures. How can you make sure that the trees will bloom, the sun will return, and the earth will once again be warm, Jenny? How? One word, Jen. Yule. This is a quote from an article I found by Gail Sterler. It's a long quote, but it perfectly explains how Yule worked. So I'm going to read it all to you guys. Quote, according to Norse historian and saga translator Lee M. Hollander, every nine years, Germanic or Norse farmers were compelled to come to the Temple Hof and make sacrifices and feasts over a prescribed period of time during Yuletide. Yule was celebrated in Germanic countries with animal sacrifices, where the sanctified blood was then used to paint the altar, temple posts, and the supplicant himself as part of the ritual. He was literally, quote, washed in the blood. This was followed by feasts, storytelling, and drinking around a large communal fire. In the Greta saga, it is described as the time of, quote, greatest mirth and joy among men. This was also the time of oath-making. Business deals and marriages were brokered. The godi, priest, judge, or chieftain, who was in charge of the hof, wore a great ring around his neck. People who would swear an oath laid their hands on this ring and made their pledge in front of witnesses. Just such a ring was found at the excavation of an 11th century chieftain's residence on the outskirts of Tiso, Denmark. Can we just unpack that? Absolutely. So I'm just going to go back to the part where the supplicant is washed in the blood. So imagine that you are in a great Nordic temple. It's built of wood. There are massive columns holding up the pitched roof of this enormous building. And you kill some unfortunate animal on this altar and paint the entire inside of the building with its blood and also paint yourself in it. You have been washed in the blood. Merry fucking Yule. This is, this is the most metal episode we've ever done. <laughs> and also, when you're washed in the blood is a great time to do business transactions. <laughs> when you think about it, actually, realistically, everyone is inside. And there might be times where you were snowed in for a week or more. During that time, it's a great time to do business, man. Everyone is a captive audience. Yeah, and everybody's covered in blood. It's a great time to do business. I mean, eventually they wash or roll in the snow. Oh, my God. I'd make so many snow angels. Bloody snow angels. Or snow Odins. <laughs> So there's another thing I want to point out. The ring. You said the chieftain or judge or priest wore a great gold ring around his neck. I mean, I can only assume that that was a torque. 
It sounded exactly like a torque. Yeah. Had to have been a torque. We encountered torques when we were doing our Gaul episode and our Celtic episode, and we we're talking about the torque, which was basically a very ornate metal ring that was worn around the neck of high-ranking people in Celtic society. It was definitely a status symbol. And I could totally see how some cultures might use this as actually the thing that you swear on when you're making an oath. And I also wanted to ask you, we run into this word hof. Jen, what is a hof? A hof is a really old word, and it means house, dwelling, or temple or sanctuary. So they're talking about the stuff that was happening in the Hof, which could have been their temple or their sanctuary or just their, I would assume here in this instance, a long house, because we're not talking about a small house. This is quite public. Again, it's kind of vague because a lot of stuff here isn't written down quite just yet. So we may be getting it from a different source or we're getting it from the prose edda. More of a modern lens. Exactly. There's also another reason why we see so many big feasts like this at the start of winter. At the start of winter, after the harvest was brought in, it was customary to kill any of the animals who were unlikely to make it through the winter. Food would be lean over the dark months, so people couldn't afford to have sickly or old animals taking up grain that could be used to feed the family or animals with a better chance of making it to spring. So there was always more meat during this time of year. The meat could be cured or dried and then kept for the rest of the winter, but it was also often eaten just at once at large midwinter feasts, which were a traditional part of Yule. And it's worth pointing out that midwinter feasts are a tradition in places all over the world. And in Western Europe, they go very far back. The idea of having these epic large midwinter feasts, which weren't really midwinter when you think about it, December is kind of the beginning of winter. You still have to get through all of January and all of February. So the idea of having these really big feasts sort of at the beginning of winter was kind of saying to the gods, okay, we believe in you. We believe that you are going to see us through this winter. So we're going to have this big feast. We're going to sacrifice to you. And hopefully this is our covenant with you. You are going to see us through into the spring. There was a lot of risk here. It was an act of faith in a way. Absolutely. Going on to talk about how old this tradition is of having a giant feast at the midwinter time. We're going into prehistory. The remains of over 385 slaughtered pigs have been found at Durrington Walls, a large settlement about two miles from Stonehenge, dating to around 2600 BC. The pigs were about nine months old when they died. And as they were likely to be born in early spring, which was prime pig breeding time, in case you didn't know, that puts their deaths in midwinter. Archaeologists believe people travel from all over the region to participate in midwinter rituals and feasts. We can't say exactly what the occasion was for this feast and other ancient remains of midwinter feasts throughout Europe, but there is an intriguing suggestion that midwinter feasts are extremely ancient in European tradition, and the roots of Yule may be older than anything we have written down. Yeah, and pigs are also associated with Yule, which we're getting to. So hold up, we're just going to add to our fan fiction thesis here. Yule is an ancient tradition that was inspired by volcanoes. Odin is definitely Santa Claus. Not Santa Claus, it's Odin Claus. The Wild Hunt was inspired by the Aurora Borealis. Because <laughs> why not? And Jen... Yule goes all the way back to the time of Stonehenge. Guys, I'm really sorry. My I start my episodes as if they're intelligent and scholarly, and all of a sudden they go back to Atlantis. <laughs> <laughs> 
let's talk about the Yule log. Oh, could we please? <laughs> so this is one thing that I actually knew about that's in the general zeitgeist about Yule. There's a log. What is the Yule log, you ask? Well, we're going to tell you all about it. So how did the ancient people celebrate Yule, Jen? Let's, t- let's get into the nitty gritty. They definitely painted themselves in blood and also their entire house in blood. So there's that. I wrote this episode and I don't remember where we were going. Why did I drink the wassail? Jen has been really dipping hard into the white rabbit vat over at Shade Jen McMenemy Stone. I'm quite trashed. So Jenny, um, I think this is you because I see a G but not a J here. <laughs> Yours is the name that starts in G. I want you to say it. <laughs> It all started with the Yule log, Jen. Ancient Germanic and Norse peoples would go out into the forest. They'd select the biggest and best looking tree and they'd fell it. And then they would haul the tree back to their homes and begin the process of turning it into a Yule log. The ancient Vikings lived communally in long, narrow buildings called longhouses. These were generally made of timber. In Iceland, where wood was rarer, they might be made of sod. With walls made of wattle and daub. And we talk about wattle and daub in our Gauls episode. I think it's like a building material that's kind of made of like mud and dung and water and dirt and easily accessible natural materials. And it's quite good for insulation and for being flexible in windy areas and stuff. It's like actually a really robust building material. So anyway, your longhouse as a Viking might be made of timber or if you live in Iceland, it might be made of wattle and daub. It probably has a thatched roof. It definitely has a massive fireplace. Massive. These houses were huge. Some have been found that were up to 250 feet long. Entire extended families of 30 to 50 people would live in the longhouses, and their livestock lived in there too, especially during the winter months. So the longhouse, incidentally, is a very ancient form of house. The Viking longhouse descends from the Germanic longhouse, which arose in the 3rd or 4th century BC and was common around the southwestern region of the North Sea. Evidence of Neolithic longhouses in Western Europe date all the way back to 5000 BC. We don't know if the Yule log tradition dates back that far, but what the hell? We're just going to go ahead and say that the Yule log tradition dates back that far, along with all the other crazy shit we've said in this episode. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Why not? Why not? We drank the wassail. Wassail. Whatever. Don't care. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> So, Jen, moving on. (laughs) I'm going to move on. So, around Yule, an entire tree would be brought into the great room of this massive longhouse. Some of the tree would be placed into the fireplace, this massive fireplace, remember? And some of it was kind of just sticking out into the main room. This is, you know, of course, not at all a fire hazard in a giant wood place. Can we just pause Yeah. We pause and let me ask the question everyone's thinking. Was this the whole tree with the leaves and the roots and everything or were those cut off? Let me tell you what I found in my research. So some research was like, no, they took the leaves and the roots and all that off and they carved some lovely little things about fertility and long life and all these things into the tree. And it was just kind of like a big like trunk that went through. Other research were like, they knocked down a tree and brought it inside. (laughs) So it really... Really just depends on what you're reading and it possibly evolved over time wood doesn't burn the same when it's a bit wet so to me if you bring in all the branches and all the bits of it some of those branches might still be wet the roots will definitely still be wet i'm like how big is this fireplace exactly like what is happening right now 
I know. I agree. But anyway, we've got this giant tree. Some of it's in the giant fireplace. Some of it's just like streaming out into the main room. It's basically a log that is out in the main room and the end of it is in the fireplace. And as the end of it burns, people move the log closer into the fireplace. Before it was burned, the Yule log was supposed to be carved with runes for protection, for fertility, for the returning of the spring, and for household misfortunes, including fire. Can we just like pause here and appreciate the irony of that? Take a one minute pause. All right, I think we're good. That was not a minute. Keep pausing. <laughs> Still appreciating the irony. Can't talk. <laughs> anyway. All right, it's been a minute of appreciating the irony. Here's the other thing about the Yule Log, which just cracked me up. The Yule Log had to be lit with the remains from the previous year's Yule Log. So the Yule Log was supposed to burn for the 12 days of Yule. Yeah, because the Vikings believed that the sun stopped for the 12 days of Yule. Yeah, because those were the 12 darkest days of the year. At the end of Yule, a small portion of the log would be kept under the bed of the homeowner of this longhouse as good luck for the rest of the year. And this was supposed to, ironically, protect against fires. And it was a nod to Thor. And Thor was the god of thunder, so I'm guessing he could start like a freak fire. It was also said, and this is my favorite fact here, that each spark of the Yule fire was supposed to represent the birth of a new baby piglet come springtime. Every spark is a piglet. I know. Every spark is a piglet. Um. <laughs> we alluded to our Christmas traditions because Jen and I both grew up celebrating Christmas, but our Christmas traditions were very different. Very different. Yeah. I, I grew up in a completely non-religious household. You could say that our Christmas tradition was shameless materialism. Totally. And I grew up in the opposite of that. I grew up very Roman Catholic. And when I was a kid, I was in the nativity. It's so funny because even if you talk to people who celebrate the same thing, like celebrate Christmas or celebrate Hanukkah or celebrate, you know, whatever holiday you celebrate, not everyone's going to do it the same way. Like my Christmas and Jen's Christmas were quite different. Like in terms of meaning, in addition to in terms of which traditions we had. It is weird looking at this stuff, especially the Christianization of Yule and realizing that so much of the things that we celebrate and honor today come from these ancient traditions. <laughs> So the thing I wanted to talk about here about our Christmas tradition, Jenny, was about the Yule Log. Did you ever do a thing with the Yule Log? Because we never had that in my Christmas tradition. There was no Yule Log. See, I did. I came from an Irish-Scottish tradition and an Italian tradition. And again, I'm American. So all of these traditions come from the filter of being American. But this Italian tradition I'm going to talk to you about comes from Italy. My grandfather was born in Italy. He grew up in a small town. My grandfather would find a Yule Log every Christmas Eve. And he would select the biggest and the best log and he would start a fire and not like half sticking out into the living room like just the whole thing is in the fireplace the whole thing is in the fireplace because this is the much more christianized tradition that came down through sicily and naples and it was the idea that you would have one log that would burn from christmas eve through to what the brits call boxing day that's the day after christmas right yeah 
And I remember it as a kid, he would pick this really big, really fat log and he would watch it and make sure it actually burned. There's definitely a tie-in to the ancient Yule log because that had to burn for 12 days. It did. And this came through to Italy and it was obviously Christianized, but it totally goes back to the Norse tradition. Like it absolutely comes through that cultural exchange. You can also see the Yule log on TV, like at least in the US. You can. And also I have found this on Amazon Fire. I have seen it on the Fire Stick over Christmas and I've also seen it on Netflix. The other form that the Yule log takes in modern times that I've seen is the dessert. Oh, delicious dessert. In France, it's called the Bouche de Noël. It's a delicious cake version of a Yule log, and it's made up of layers of delicious rolled cake or pastry and nuts and berries and cream, and it's decorated in chocolate to look like bark, and sometimes it looks really realistic. It's really good. So the Yule log also lives on in Spain, particularly in Catalan culture, and in Catalan culture, the Yule log, or sometimes it's called Tio, is a magic log that's brought home from the forest just before Christmas, and children sing to the log and beat it with sticks to make it poop out candy. I love this part. Poor Tio. I don't feel bad for Tio at all. He deserves what he gets. <laughs> I feel like I've seen in other places, sometimes the children take him home and they take care of the log and they bring it inside out of the cold. And in return, it gives it sweet treats, which is exactly what young Jen would do. I think that we should just beat Tio with a stick. You are possibly of the majority. I'm the worst. That's all. <laughs> it's fine. What I find really interesting about Catalan culture is the scatological history they have. Jenny and my husband and I went to Barcelona a few years ago and we saw the Catalonian poopers. The Catalonian pooper is in the back of the nativity scene and he is there and he is pooping. He's out of the way from the main event. And the idea is that when nature calls, nature calls and you have no control over that. And the point of this is that you can't sort of tell when nature is going to call or when God is going to send the miracle. I think the message might just be, if you got a poo, you got a poo. Sure. So let's talk about a few other aspects of Yule that the ancients included in their holiday that people might not know about. So this was one of my favorite things I came across in my research. The Wheel of the Sun lives on in today's modern traditions. The Wheel of the Sun looked a lot like what we call a Christmas wreath. It was a really massive wreath that was covered with holly and ivy, two things that bloom in the winter and are meant to represent the fact that life still existed in the cold and the darkness. It would be like what? As big as a man is tall, right? Like really big. Maybe even taller, Jenny. And this giant wreath would be made and then would be lit on fire and rolled down a snowy hill. And this was supposed to attract the sun's attention. And, you know, remind it, it's time to come back. Please come back. Jen is crying in a corner. She hasn't seen the sun in three days. I can only imagine how beautiful it must have been to watch these burning wheels rolling down a snow-covered hill at midwinter. Yeah, so let's talk about the Yule Boar. Oh, I knew this would be your favorite. I love the Yule Boar because I love how pigs are associated with midwinter and the Christmas ham and Stonehenge. So up next is the Yule Boar. And if you eat ham at Christmas, then you have Yule and the god Frey to thank for this traditional dish. Pigs and wild boar were sacred to the Norse god Frey. What was Frey the god of? Like fertility or something? He was definitely a fertility god. He was the brother of Freya and also husband. Like the Ptolemies. So part of the Yule celebration 
an ancient Yule celebration was to sacrifice a wild boar to the god Frey in return for fertility in the upcoming year. Once the boar was sacrificed, it would be boiled and then served at the Yule feast. The head of the boar was considered to be a choice delicacy. This would be dressed and prepared specially, featuring an apple in the boar's mouth and served at the head of the table. If you have a Christmas ham, if that's part of your tradition, then it dates all the way back to ancient Yule. Ancient Stonehenge celebration apparently involved a lot of pigs being slaughtered and served up. So that is a very old connection. Absolutely. Maybe a prehistorical connection. Oh, definitely prehistorical, which is why we don't know much about it and why we're totally fantasizing here that it was basically Yule going all the way back to Stonehenge. So let's talk about the Yule goat. The Yule goat was such a delightful surprise that I came across when researching Yule. According to Norse mythology, Thor, the god of thunder, had a sleigh that was pulled across the sky by two goat bucks or male goats. Why should eight-legged horses, pegasi, and reindeers have the market cornered on flying? I mean, that doesn't seem fair to me. Is pegasi how we're saying plural pegasuses? now? Yes, Pegasi is plural of Pegasus. So according to an article by Gail Sterler, the Yule goats, quote, during Yule would either bring gifts to well-behaved children or demand gifts on behalf of Thor. Over time, the Yulebok became Yultomte, which is a combination of Yule goat, Santa Claus, and Father Christmas, who would bring gifts and drive a sleigh pulled by reindeer not goats. Originally, it's two male goats who would show up at your door and demand presents. They'd only demand presents if they had just cause. So here's the thing, Jenny. I absolutely love the idea of two male goats showing up at your house and demanding gifts for Thor because you know why. You know what you did this year to wind up on Thor's shit list. You've been so, so bad. Are you going to spank me? No. Listen, please. Why miss back? This is not a Julius Caesar podcast. I'm sorry, Jen. You were doing the sexy voice. Of course, I was going to ask if you were going to spank me. So the thing I loved about this is Thor is totally the strong man of Norse mythology with his mighty hammer and his penchant for getting into epic battles. He's the god of thunder and he has a giant hammer. Sometimes he cross-dresses when Loki tricks him into it. So to me, Jenny, this idea of an early incarnation of Father Christmas or Santa Claus is freaking hilarious. It's like something out of a ridiculous Viking romance novel, like Taken by the Viking. <laughs> or like, hold up, let me let me just paint a picture for you. Chris Helmsworth as Thor as Santa Claus. Oh, fuck me. I have been so naughty. I have been a decade's worth of naughty. I know what I did, Chris Hemsworth. Are you going to spank me for it? Please. And then the oral <laughs> sex. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going there, but anyway. It's a Monty Python sketch. <laughs> So if Chris Hemsworth, I mean Thor's, goats show up and demand satisfaction, I mean a present, because they've been so naughty, I am totally happy to give them something because I know what I did this year. Jen knows what she did. And I will only tell Chris Hemsworth or Thor. Not telling the goats, let's be real. The goats do not get to spank me. No, I will. I will totally take it up with Thor or Chris. Chris Hemsworth, have we harassed you enough in this episode? Also, I apologize. <laughs> I'm just going to drink my beer and objectify Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> That's my holiday plan. 
So the Yule goat is actually an ancient tradition that may even be older than Norse mythology. It's tied to an ancient Indo-European tradition where the last sheaf of grain from the harvest was believed to have magical properties. Like this is a little bit of a tangential connection here, but bear with me. That makes total sense to me as a recovering Catholic because the last palm at Palm Sunday was supposed to have magical properties that would give you money throughout the year. Wow, there is a connection then. I'm sorry, like I know I sound drunk and ridiculous, but there is a total connection there. Jen's trashed. So the sheaf was saved to be used in midwinter festival celebrations. In Scandinavia, it was called the Yule Goat or Yule Bakken, among other things. The Yule Goat, which was actually a sheaf of grain, the last sheaf of grain, the magical last sheaf of grain, took other forms as well, such as an invisible spirit that appeared at Yule Tide to make sure that the celebrations were being prepared the right way. So definitely like nitpicking how you're boiling that boar head. Yeah, a dick sheaf of grain. Dick sheaf of grain slash invisible spirit. In ancient proto-Slavic tradition, the Yule goat was an actual goat, you guys. Not a sheaf, not an asshole invisible spirit sheaf, but an actual goat. The god of the sun and the harvest, Devok, was symbolized by a white goat, and the Kaleida festival, which was a pre-Christian festival celebrated in Russia in Eastern Europe, involved a person dressed up as a goat demanding presents. Coincidence? I think not. It's really interesting that the Yule goat shows up in Eastern European and Russian folklore, too, because it indicates a very old root. The ancient Germanic people lived in what's now today Eastern and Central Europe from the 3rd century BC onward. And we talked about this earlier about how they may have come from Scandinavia around the 800s or 700s BC. Exactly. And because it's so widespread throughout the Nordic countries, Russia and Eastern Europe, the Yule goat tradition may date from a time before all these people separated and spread out. And you know what, Jenny? What? I went to Ikea a few years ago, and I think I actually have a Yule goat. Really? Mm-hmm. I'll look through my holiday decorations and see if I can find them for you and put it up in our Instagram. Well, we're just going to add this to the thesis that the Yule goat dates back to like the seven or 800s BC, which is when the Germanic people left Skanza. Or maybe earlier than that. We don't know. It's a mystery. Maybe it is back to Stonehenge, like Yule itself. Totally. Anyway, the Yule goat was eventually incorporated into some Christian versions of this holiday. Images from the 11th century depict a goat man figure led by St. Nicholas, signifying the saint's control over the influences of Satan. So there were some pranks associated with the Yule goat, the sheaf of corn version of the Yule goat, which for some reason was called a goat. I don't know why. I don't look at me. People in pre-Christian Scandinavia used to love hiding it in each other's houses without knowing. So if you found the Yule goat in your house, what you were supposed to do was hide it in someone else's house without them knowing. So let's talk about Odin Claus. This was one of the things when I was doing the research where I was like, how is this possible? I didn't know this already. Should we really be calling Santa Claus Odin Claus? Uh, yes. Oh, Odin Claus. Oh, Oh, Odin Odin Claus. Claus. Of all the clauses, I love thee. I I was just going to go with something, 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 Odin Claus. Odin Claus is coming to town. (laughs) Odin Claus is coming to town. He knows when you've been naughty. He knows when you've been naughty. So naughty. Odin Claus is on to you. Odin Claus and Thor Claus and their goats are going to show up at your door and they're going to give you a spanking. 
So there's another god who became a precursor to our modern-day Santa Claus or Father Christmas or Old Man Winter or whatever, and that is Odin. And we've been talking about Odin this whole episode because we can't shut up about Odin. Odin was the All-Father, the head of the Norse gods, and one of his numerous names was Yulnir, or Master of Yule. Odin flew across the skies on his eight-legged white horse, which is basically a horse spider. It's totally a horse spider. Slept near the horse spider. It's like an arachnid horse. I'm not okay with this. I'm totally totally fine with it. I love horses. I am down with spiders. Oh, you would be. So basically, Odin and Slip near the horse spider flew across the sky during the Yule Festival at the head of the wild hunt. Odin had dual roles here. He was out amongst the skies as part of the terrifying wild hunt, like I said, and that is the more ancient form of this myth. And in later centuries, he evolved to be a deity who also delivered gifts to children who had behaved themselves that year. According to a post on throwbackthorsday.wordpress.com, If you were going to have a WordPress name, wouldn't it be Throwback Thursday? It would be for me. I'm going to totally refer to Thursday as Throwback Thursday at all times now. Same. Quote, Gifts were left for Odin and Sletnir, for the other riders and their steeds, usually a sacrifice of food, hay, and oats. One description says that these gifts were put in a small boat and taken to the woods about a bowshot's distance from the back of the home. This seems particularly appropriate given the practice of ship burial among Germanic peoples and a nearly explicit connection between the wild hunt myth and the recently deceased, perhaps a small payment, perhaps merely a gift for Odin to thank him for caring for the souls of that family's ancestors. And I find that really interesting because as a kid we used to leave gifts not just for Santa Claus. Like, we used to leave cookies for Santa Claus and also carrots for the reindeer. This idea of leaving sacrifice not just for Odin, but Odin's steed has been carried through in the Santa Claus myth. In ancient times, people left sacrifices for Odin and his wild hunt to ensure their safety during the dangerous days of Yule. But after Christianity came to the Germanic peoples, you can see this myth changing. Odin becomes conflated with Saint Nick. Children leave their boots outside at night filled with hay for Odin's steed. And in return, Odin gives them little presents. There is such a contradiction to the original Odin clause, the wild and untamed god who races across the skies during the liminal months of winter. But this much more sanitized St. Nicholas tradition is the one that has endured through to this day. You can see the Christianization of these myths at work here, and what these two different cultures, pagan and Christian, were concerned about with these myths. The pre-Christian myths saw Odin and the wild hunt as these wild, capricious forces that were perhaps an explanation for increased winter deaths. But under Christianity, you can see more of a concern about behavior modification, especially in children. So in parts of Europe, children still leave their shoes out on St. Nicholas's Day and have them filled with treats if they've been good, not really knowing that this is an ancient custom that dates back to Odin. We can assume that when they've been bad, Thor's goats showed up and demanded a present, because that's the kind of assholes they are. Fucking hell. You know what you did, Jen. You know why the goats are at your doorstep. Dude, I particularly did those dirty, dirty things so that Thor and his goats would show up. I'm not surprised. So there are other Yule traditions. There are two that we've lumped together for some reason, and those are wassailing and evergreen trees. The ancient Vikings were the first people to create the tradition of the Christmas tree. Of course, it wasn't called the Christmas tree, but the concept of the decorated evergreen tree inside the house, not the same as the Yule log, it's a decorated evergreen tree, has its roots firmly planted in Yule, you guys. The Vikings believed that the evergreen trees were sacred. They were a symbol of enduring life because they remained green when everything else had died because they were deciduous. During Yule, evergreen trees were decorated with small carvings and gifts from the spirits of the trees to coax them into returning back to life and starting spring early. 
The ancient Germanic peoples believed the deciduous trees were inhabited by spirits who fell asleep in the winter, particularly the fruit-bearing trees. During Yule, it was important to wake the trees up so they would once again flower and bear fruit in the spring. And this is where we get the tradition of wassailing from. It's wassailing. Rhymes with fossiling. You're wrong. You're wrong. Anyway, according to an article on Learn Religions by Patty Wigington, quote, The tradition of wassailing, pronounced to rhyme with fossiling, ha! Huh? You're wrong! Listen, this is what Patty Wigington says. I'm just repeating what Patty Wigington says. Wrong! I didn't say it. She said it. Says it rhymes with fossiling. Is hardly a new one, okay? The tradition is hardly a new one. In centuries past, wassailers... Wassailers. Not wassailers. Wassailers. My husband and I actually were in my kitchen earlier singing the wassailing song. Well, you're singing it wrong is all. We're not. You're wrong. Went from door to door, singing and drinking to the health of their neighbors. The concept actually harkens back to pre-Christian fertility rites, like we've been saying this whole time. Only in those ceremonies, villagers traveled through their fields and orchards in the middle of winter, singing and shouting to drive away any spirits that might inhibit the growth of future crops. As part of this, they poured wine and cider on the ground to encourage fertility in the crops. So that's right, Jenny. During Yule, it was a tradition to get drunk, get rowdy, and go outside and sing to the trees and fields to encourage them to wake up and grow things. And I just have one thing to say. Best idea ever. I'm not saying that you're wrong here. (laughs) (laughs) And if wassailing feels familiar, that's because in modern times, we've adopted this custom in the form of Christmas caroling. Although... I'm very, very keen to bring back the traditional wassailing. This is a tradition where you go outside and get really drunk and sing to the trees. I mean, essentially, it's where I am right now, but you just go outside. Jen's drunk (laughs) enough to do this right now. (laughs) So let's talk about mistletoe, Jen. Please. Mistletoe. That's another Yule thing. So the story behind mistletoe goes back to Norse mythology. So one night, the god Baldr, son of the goddess Freya or Frigga, because there's many ways to pronounce this, had a bad dream that he was going to die. His mother, the goddess of love and beauty and fertility, married to the god Frey, lost her shit. She was the original helicopter mom. That's what Jen wrote, so I'm saying that. And she decided that she was going to keep her son safe at all costs. So she went to all the other gods, goddesses, animals, and plants and made them swear an oath that they would not harm her son. And this is one of those annoying, unbreakable vow-type vows, oaths, that you cannot break this oath. And it totally made Balder about as popular as a turd in a wassail bowl. It's totally embarrassing, and he was not thrilled that his mom had decided that she was going to fight his battles for him. Also, a fun game among the gods after this was to throw things at Balder, knowing they couldn't hurt him. So they just threw things at him and just were like, ha ha, we can't hurt you, ha ha. I mean, I'm not going to lie, Jenny, that is totally a game I would have taken part in. This is such an <laughs> asshole move. I mean, but I'm kind of that asshole. <laughs> Only when you're drunk, though. When you're sober, you're just take care of the log and bring it inside out of the cold and pet it and stroke it and call it a nice log. When I'm drunk, I'm like, let's throw some shit at Balder. Like, he can't feel it anyway. Great plan! <laughs> anyway... So now Balder was basically, the bounds of his protection were that nothing could hurt him that had roots or that breathed or that lived in the heavens. So Balder was immune to all these things and anything that fall under that category could be chucked at him by a god just for the lulls. Enter Loki and the mistletoe. Loki figured out that because mistletoe didn't have roots and didn't breathe and didn't live in the heavens, although actually it kind of does all those things. 
It does all of those things because it grows in like a tall tree and it definitely has some kind of roots that are getting into like the branches and stealing their nutrients. But what do I know? And there's definitely some gas exchange that probably qualifies as breathing. So anyway, this Loki is just wrong here. But because plot, the mistletoe wasn't included in Frigga's helicopter parenting. In other words, it could be used to kill Baldur. And for, I don't know, whatever reason, Loki decided that Baldur needed to die. The trickster god convinced Hoder, Baldur's blind brother, to fire a mistletoe dart in the direction of Baldur. And it, of course, hit Baldur because gods and plot, and Baldur died. So Frigga, or Freya, was inconsolable. She wept and wept and wept and wept and wept and wept and wept for three days, God. And all the gods, elements, plants, animals, everybody under the sun try their best to resurrect Baldur and make it stop. Stop, but to no avail. Finally, on the third day, Frigga slash Freya's tears turned the red berries of mistletoe white, and this caused Baldur to rise from the dead. His mom was so grateful to the plant that she reversed her decision about mistletoe being the worst and decided that she was going to kiss everyone who walked under mistletoe out of gratitude. And that's where the kissing under the mistletoe comes from. Mistletoe was a symbol of fertility and love, probably because of its association with Frigga. And it was brought inside during Yule and hung up similar to what we do now. Maidens used to place a sprig of mistletoe under their pillows because it was supposed to give them the ability to dream about their future beloved. Maidens also burned mistletoe to find out whether or not they would be happy in love. And I just want to stop for a minute here because maiden just makes me go, ugh. What does that mean? unmarried women or women who have never had sex or like below a certain age. What I assume is that like women who have never been married and also potentially never had sex. And to me, this just felt like Ugh. I know, because in most traditions in the ancient world, you're not supposed to have sex before marriage, but that's not true everywhere. So maidens also burn mistletoe to find out whether or not they would be happy in love. Mistletoe that burnt steadily foretold a good marriage. Mistletoe that flickered meant you'd be unhappy in marriage and love. It was also said in ancient times, when enemies met under mistletoe, they dropped their arms and embraced and would agree to a truce until the next day. This is a quote I found about mistletoe from Gail Stroller, quote, mistletoe was generally revered by the ancient druids and the Norse people believed it was magical. It stayed green all year round, even though the host tree would drop its leaves and look dead. It drew in nutrients without any roots in the earth. It was always found high up in oak and apple trees. If found in a sacred oak, it was cut down with a gold sickle during a special ceremony and caught in a white cloak before it hit the ground. Then the magical mistletoe was divided and a piece was given to every home in the village to ward off evil for the next year. Thus, hanging mistletoe over the door became a New Year's tradition. So that thing about the white cloak is actually from Pliny the Elder. He's talking about the Gauls there. He's not talking about the Germanic people. But like we've said before, there was a lot of cultural exchange. So There was so much cultural exchange. So let's talk about Grilla. Oh, my favorite. For this next Yule-related tradition, we're leaving the ancient Vikings of Scandinavia and we're moving into Iceland to discuss Grilla. Iceland has this incredibly high literacy rate. Do you know, Jenny, that people in Iceland give each other books on Christmas Eve? Wow, cool. So Grilla was a giantess, but in some sources, she's also been referred to as a witch, and that might be the effects of Christianization. She first appears in Norse mythology around 13th century, but her connection to Yule doesn't come until around the 17th century. A little bit outside the purview of our podcast, but we're still going to talk about her. Grilla had a taste for bad children, and she could actually smell if you're naughty or not. You got 
got that naughty stink on you, Jen. Gorilla's going to sniff that right out. Here's the thing, Gorilla. I'm in my 30s. If it's pickings or slim, she might come for you. I'm old sheep meat. (laughs) (laughs) During Yule, Gorilla comes out of her cave in the mountains and looks for naughty children to turn into stew. Or maybe Jen to turn into stew. Bring it, Gorilla. So, originally... What the fuck? I'm just trying to get through this paragraph. (laughs) You've asked drunk Jen to weigh in here. Also, tipsy Jenny is not much of a normalizing factor. That is also true. So originally, Grilla appeared as a beggar woman who went door to door asking parents to turn over their disobedient children to be turned into sweet, sweet baby stew. I knew you'd love that line. (laughs) And most parents were like, um, yeah, please take my child, please God. Most parents were like, no, why don't you take some of this delicious Yule ham? Gorilla was easily fobbed off by ham. (laughs) So in later stories, Gorilla is chased out of town and forced to live in a cave on a volcanic plain in Iceland. Gorilla only gets to leave her cave once a year and she returns to town during Yule to fill her giant sack full of bad children. But this time, she doesn't go door to door looking for her prey. She doesn't go away with a bit of ham or maybe some sweet treats. This time, Gorilla is hunting, always searching for bad children to stuff into her sack and take back to her cave. And Jenny, in the 17th century, Gorilla became such an effective tool for behavior modification of children during Yule that Icelandic children were actually terrified of the holiday. Really? They were. Local authorities had to step in and they had to ask parents not to use Gorilla as a Yuletide boogie woman. Can you imagine? Why did the local authorities have to step in? What was happening in these houses? Well, effectively, Gorilla became like the boogie woman. And they were like, you better be good or Gorilla is going to come and make you into stew. I mean, I think there's something so interesting here about the Christian behavior modification. You don't really see that in the ancient pagan myths, right? Well, the thing about the wild hunt that I find very different from Gorilla is that the wild hunt feels to me that it's part of the natural life cycle. Like people just eventually lay down their arms and they just let go. But Gorilla, someone who can sniff out how naughty you've been and she will collect you into the sack of like all these naughty children. And the only way to be let go is for children to repent of their sin. And then in these later myths, Gorilla has to let you go if you repent. To me, that very much speaks to Christianity. And that might have been like a trapdoor escape kind of of the gorilla sack situation that parents introduced after the authorities had to step in and mitigate the fear of gorilla. But the earlier myths, like the wild hunt and the earlier gorilla, it's like you've been naughty all year or you're old or you're tired or you're caught outdoors. And now you join this eternal dance across the skies. But there's not really much you can do about it. Like it's not about your behavior unless you happen to have been caught outdoors. But a lot of people had to go outdoors to hunt or do other things. So sometimes you just get stuck outdoors. You may or may not have any control over whether you've been taken by the wild hunt. Totally. And to me, Gorilla feels like the first place where we see that very Christian. I mean, it's difficult because we're talking about Icelandic and we haven't done a deep dive into the Christianization of Iceland. But to me, it feels like that first place where we're seeing like children behave or else. So let's talk about the Yule lads. 
Damn straight. So the Yule Lads, this is our final Yule story. And the Yule Lads come straight to us from Grilla's cave. So like we said before, Grilla had 13 sons. It's a lot of sons. I'm just going to say that's too many sons. I question why she had to venture a field to eat children because she clearly had plenty of children. Maybe she like had these hormones that said, I love these weirdos. Barf. Whatever, Jenny. I'm not going to argue this with you. So her sons were maybe trolls or maybe giants or maybe witches. We don't know. They've all come down differently throughout folklore. Right. So they were definitely mischievous. That's the key thing. They loved to get up to all kinds of shit. And they were pranksters who got to get out of their cave and away from their mom for 13 days a year, beginning on the 12th of December. Which, Jenny, is incidentally the day we drop this episode. The Yule Lads are officially on the loose. You're going to see the first one today. Anyway, so the Yule Lads, beginning on the 12th of December, would start appearing in town one by one. And each lad had a specific prank that they were known for orchestrating. And these pranks are kinds of the things that you see small children finding hilarious. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of, like, the elf on the shelf. It's, like, the kind of stuff people do today when they share their photos of like elf on a shelf you know what i mean right jenny yeah like the elf on the shelf blowing some powder that looks pretty dubious with a rolled up dollar bill (laughs) getting it on with a barbie doll yes so there's like some really naughty elves on the shelf elf on a shelf sniffing your underwear yes because elf on a shelf can be quite perverted but there's also somewhere like elf on a shelf has decided he's gonna drink all your hot chocolate or other more innocent things. Those are the sanitized version. Or just the ones that you're sharing with your small children. There are some Instagram accounts that are actually dedicated to like the elves doing crazy shit. We should put in the show notes like one of the funnier ones. Probably a not safe for work one because that's what we find amusing. We'll definitely put a link. So pretty much the Yule Lads were the original elves on the shelf you could say and they got 13 days to rip things up around town and they would leave sweets for good children who left their shoes on the windowsill. But if you were a bad child who got a potato in your shoe and potatoes can also be made into delicious things so I feel like for me this is kind of a win-win here potatoes are great Totally. I mean, I read in some place it was just a regular potato and other places it was a rotten potato. But to me, you can make potatoes into like French fries. Yeah, or mashed potatoes. Either way, it's a win-win. The Yule Lads are traditionally dressed in medieval Icelandic clothes, but have sometimes been depicted in outfits more akin to something Father Christmas or Santa Claus wears, because this is that idea of sanitizing them and making them feel more family-friendly. So just for fun, I wanted to share the very descriptive names of the Yule Lads and what they got up to when they came to town. So we're not going to use the Icelandic pronunciation because A, Jen is drunk. B, I looked at these Icelandic names and thought, well, if we try to pronounce these, I'm sure we have some listeners in Iceland, in which case, shout out to our listeners in Iceland. Hey, we're about to discuss your mythology. And I apologize in advance. Also, if we attempted to pronounce these names, we'd probably offend everybody in Iceland who listens to our episodes. Woohoo! We know we'd fuck it up. So here they are, our Yule lad. And Jenny, you're to start. Okay, so the first one that showed up at your door on the 12th of December was Sheep Coat Claude. His deal was that he loved to harass sheep. I mean, sexually or just in general? It did not say. I'm going to leave it to the sheep to sort that out. Moving on. 
Next came Gully Gawk, and he arrived on the 13th of December, and his big prank MO was to hide in gullies and wait for the chance to sneak into a cow shed and steal some milk, because delicious, delicious milk. I mean, this is my prank MO. I hide in a lot of gullies. Considering my booze is made of mostly milk, it sounds about right. We feel you, Gully Gawk. So... <laughs> What are we talking? What are we even saying? What does that mean? I don't know. Let's talk about Stubby. (laughs) Stubby was the next Yule lad, and this guy was short. He liked to steal pans and eat all the crust left on them, which to me sounds like he just stole unwashed pans and ate the crust of baked goods or greased or fried stuff off of them, which I have definitely never done. Nope. Definitely not. Have you really done that? Yeah, of course, like the crust of a pie. Yes, that's the best part. Oh, I mean, to me, it's like the grease film I left when I didn't wash the pan for like three days. Oh, no, not that part. Like, just like the part of the crust of the pie that's left in the pan when all the pie has been served. Like, I will eat the crust of the pie, okay? I'm not too proud. <laughs> Who doesn't want to eat the crust of the pie? That is the best bit. Half the you lads are me. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, after whoever it was. My man Stubby. Came spoon liquor. Poor spoon liquor is super thin. His only source of food is, you guessed it, stealing and licking wooden spoons. So, Jenny, could we please get him some oatmeal this Yule time? I mean, I don't think he's going to take it because he, he wants to steal the spoon. Oh, I'm just going to dull up my spoons with oatmeal and leave it out for him. So, pot scraper. That's the next one. It's just like it says on the tin, Jen. He stole leftovers from pots. And then comes bowl liquor. And that's B-O-W-L. I'm going to keep saying bowl. Ball liquor. Stop it, Jenny. There are people listening right now, and I'm very worried about the impression they're getting. <laughs> what? We're talking about ball liquor, all right? We're talking about bowl liquor. He hides under your bed. Bowl liquor, he hides under your bed, and he waits for you to put down your escure, which is a type of bowl with a lid on the floor. And then he steals your bowl and he licks the contents because he has no boundaries. Is the bowl with the lid on it, is that in fact a chamber pot? No, to me it sounded more like it was something that actually had food in it. So let's talk about door slammer. Door slammer? Would rock into town, and Jen, can you guess what his prank is? Did he slam those doors? Oh, he slammed the doors. He slammed doors all night long. All night long. Wow, what a dick. What a dick. After that came Skier Gobbler. And do you know what his big prank was, Jenny? Well, before we talk about his big prank, can we talk about what Skier is? Oh my god, I bought Skier today! Yeah, it's delicious. It's Icelandic, sort of like a yogurt-based treat, and it is so good. It is. So anyway, Skier Gobbler. I bet what he does has nothing to do with gobbling Skier. You know what? It does. Shocker! If someone came into my house and ate all my Skier, I would be so unhappy this Yule. Me too, I'd be pissed. So let's talk about Sausage Swiper. He hid in the rafters or wherever you put your sausage. Sausage Swiper? (laughs) He goes along with ball liquor. Bowl liquor. He still sounds like you're saying ball liquor, Jen. Bowl. (laughs) What the fuck are we doing? So Sausage Swiper steals your fucking sausage and then eats it like a boss. Because he's a cheeky fucking chap. After the sausage stealer, pretty much comes the motherfucking Mark Antony of Yule Lads. Oh, is it the new Dionysus? Is he in this group? He wishes he was called that, but for the love of Odin, just draw your curtains because window peeper rocks into town. He showed up and he peeping tommed your house. 
Okay, that's totally a Mark Antony thing to do. Absolutely. This lad would look into your house at what was going on inside. He'd scope out what stuff you had to steal. And then he'd get to work stealing shit and being a general shady fucking guy. And you know what, Jenny? He's my least favorite of the old lads. So after the window peeper came doorway sniffer. Doorway sniffer had a huge nose. His superpower was sniffing out leaf bread. Leaf bread is like a thin bread, kind of like a pancake-ish bread. Like it's a really, it's sort of like a crepe, like really thin bread that's associated with Christmas in Iceland. So after doorway sniffer comes meat hook. Let's talk about meat hook. (laughs) (laughs) Meat hook is washed in the blood. All right, he's real hardcore. Meat hook is washed in the blood and he used a hook to actually steal those meats. Steal the meats. Him and sausage stealer. All right, so the final Yule lad. My God, we finally got through this list. Candle stealer. Candle stealer. Followed children around so that he could steal their candles. And candles at a certain point in um, Icelandic history, like in most medieval eras and most places where there were candles for natural light in ancient times. What the fuck am I saying? Like in, you know, most points throughout history where candles were a big source of natural light, candles were pretty valuable. And they were also edible. Right. They were originally made of tallow and you could eat them. We don't recommend it. But if you're hungry because all you have is like stew made of children and it's not really nourishing. Yeah, I bet it would be pretty nourishing, actually. Children's do. I don't know. There's no real like fiber or like or vegetables. Oh, my God. I'm so drunk. Jen is like lit. Someone needs to roll her home in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> anyway, can't. So candle steal. Let's focus on candle stealer. <laughs> candle stealer. Would follow little children around and steal their candles. So the Yule lads and their mother Grilla also had an epic cat. And as a cat lover, cat person, I love cats. This was our favorite thing that we found in all the research that we did. And we were so excited to talk about the Yule cat and do an episode of the Yule cat, which we've already put up. It's on our Patreon and you can listen to it there for just $2 a month. You can sign up and um, we highly recommend it because it's very entertaining. And that's the history of Yule, from the brilliant and terrifying wild hunt that lit up the skies to the flaming wreaths that were rolled down a hill to Yule lads that rocked into town to cause mischief. Yule was a beautiful celebration of life, set amongst the darkest time of the year. It was a time of feasting, family, fires, and friends. It was a time of renewal and hope. It was a time to honor the year that had passed and hold hope for the year ahead. Happy Yule. Happy Yule, everybody. We'll see you in two weeks when we return to the story of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. Thor's goats are going to be making a visit to all of our naughty listeners. You know what you did. You know. So we've got some new patrons to shout out, don't we, Jen? We do. Thank you so much to Jamie Boderk, Pilar Zaremski, and Katya Oksanen. And Katya Oksanen is an amazing patron who upped her patron from $2 a month to five dollars a month we so appreciate when people do that because it just it really does like the extra three dollars a month really does make a huge difference for us thank you so so much to all of you who contributed to our patreon we really hope that you're enjoying the patreon episodes thank you so much for your support you're the reason we're able to keep this podcast going we'll be back in two weeks in the meantime you can catch up with us on social at ancient hist fan on twitter or at ancient history fangirl on instagram or facebook 
And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, check out our website at ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can find links to our Ko-Fi account, where you can buy us a delicious coffee or seasonal drink, or check out our merch. And happy holidays, no matter what holiday you celebrate during this time, we wish you a happy one.